All right, Alexander, let's talk about the confirmed meeting between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, which is going to be taking place in Moscow. It's going to be a three-day meeting from Monday until Wednesday. That's quite a long time for two heads of state to be meeting. Uh, bilateral agreements, from what I understand, will be signed. The two leaders will, the two leaders will discuss energy uh, security cooperation. I'm sure they're going to discuss Ukraine. I'm sure they're going to discuss the escalation in Taiwan. I'm sure they're going to discuss the Middle East and everything going on there. Assad meeting with Erdogan, the recent negotiations between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Uh, BRICS, they're going to talk about BRICS and uh, AUKUS. I'm sure they're going to discuss AUKUS and all of these uh, these security uh, military organizations, the Quad AUKUS that uh, that the Collective West, that the U.S. has put in place in the Pacific, uh, very much like what uh, what NATO is to Russia. So, uh, where do you want to begin with? Uh, well, let, let's video? first of big all meeting begin between two very two big, big meetings. Let Let's first of all begin by just looking at the situation uh, on the Chinese side, because this is a very big meeting. Now, Xi Jinping has just been confirmed for a third term as Chinese president, and that's unprecedented in modern Chinese history. It makes Xi Jinping the longest-serving uh, leader, I think, since Mao Zedong, and it puts him in the same sort of position in terms of authority as, you know, see people like, say, Deng Xiaoping used to have. So he's now clearly the most powerful man in China. I mean, this is not, we're no longer in the sort of collective leadership situation. I'm not suggesting that, you know, he's the absolute autocrat and emperor and dictator of China, as some people in the United States are saying, but he's now in a very, very powerful position indeed. He's also, just before he leaves for Moscow, carried out a very, very interesting and important reorganization of the central institutions of the Chinese government and of the Chinese Communist Party. Now, I, I'm not going to, I haven't got every detail of this. I've only got so far a superficial view. But it seems to me that what he's doing, what Xi Jinping is doing, is he's centralizing and tightening central control, especially of financial policy and all sorts of other types of policy as well. He's bringing them more under the control of the central government and of the central institutions of China, which ultimately means himself and people who are directly answerable to him. There's also been significant reshuffles in the Chinese government. So we've got a new prime minister, we've got a new foreign minister, uh, a very hawkish foreign minister, by the way, at least one who's given a very powerful press conference, very critical of the United States. We've got a new defence minister who has a long history of very close cooperation with the Russians and who is therefore on a US sanctions list. We also have a new economic plan with uh, China now opening up, obviously, putting lockdowns behind it, moving forward with its economy, aiming for at least 5% growth this year. And they've just made, made another bigger cash injection into the economy to spur it forward. We've had an increase in Chinese defence spending. They've 
budgeting for a 7% increase in defence spending, which is higher than GDP growth. And, of course, we've seen a whole string of Chinese diplomatic initiatives. We've seen China brokering the rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Iran. We've seen China um, engaged diplomatically on multiple fronts. And, of course, we've also seen the Chinese publish a whole series of position papers following Wang Yi's visit to um, Munich, to the Munich Security Conference, and then his visit to Moscow. And we've had Chinese position papers, of which by far the most important is a very, very critical one about U.S. foreign policy, which refers to U.S. hegemony and uh, uh, criticizes U U.S. hegemony and U.S. hegemonic policies. So all of this has happened over the very short period of time, and now we have Xi Jinping traveling to Moscow. The first trip he is making since he was confirmed for his third term as Chinese president. So this is obviously an extremely important visit from the Chinese point of view. Now, you take all of these things together, the centralization of the Chinese government, the new people who have been put in charge, Wang Yi in overall charge of foreign policy, a hawkish foreign minister, uh, um, a defense minister already sanctioned by the United States, um, the Chinese position paper on foreign policy, strong comments from the Chinese foreign minister about China, new Chinese foreign minister about U.S. foreign policy, strong comments from Xi Jinping himself over Taiwan. Well, it becomes very clear to me what this trip is all about from a Chinese point of view. They're going to Moscow. They're securing their friendship with the Russians. They're going to be looking at a whole swathe of agreements but all of these steps that the Chinese are taking, including this trip to Moscow, is China preparing for a future confrontation with the United States. That's clearly now where all this is going. And that is why Xi Jinping is not just going to Moscow. Perhaps he would have gone to Moscow anyway after being confirmed as president of China for a third term. But going to Moscow for three days at the head, apparently, of an enormous Chinese delegation. And they're going to be intense discussions. And they're going to be talking about the whole range of foreign domestic policies, the Saudi-Iranian rapprochement, the Syrian-Turkish rapprochement, the way these two dovetail together, the uh, um, economic links, the energy links, all of these things together. So that China knows confidently that Russia is there at its back, that the Russians will provide China with the food and energy it needs in the event that there's a clash with the United States and the U.S. tries to impose a blockade. And, of course, the Chinese will be seeking US, uh, Russian technology, for example, in submarines and hypersonic missiles and maybe other things. And the Russians, of course, will be wanting guarantees from the, China, from the Chinese that China is a big market for them. It's a big export market. It's also a source of investment. And, of course, 
possible technology transfer as well. But you can see how the confrontation with the United States is giving added urgency to Chinese decisions and, of course, obviously to Russian positions. And you see how, in response to that, the Chinese and the Russians are coming closer together. Okay, what role does, uh, does Australia play in all of this? I think it's an absolutely because you're, you're mentioning one. that China's preparing, China's preparing for conflict, and they're going to be meeting with Russia. But at the same time, you're getting a, a, a flurry of news: uh, AUKUS, nuclear submarines, the UK, the US, and Australia um, positioning these these submarines uh, in Australia in order in Perth, actually, in order to uh, to contain Russia. I mean, these are the statements that that are coming out, and then just just yesterday, you had the uh, the purchase of, I believe, Tomahawk missiles, $1.3 billion, uh, to purchase Tomahawk missiles from the U.S. Australia is going to be purchasing those missiles. So, what, what is going on here? So, I mean, exactly. So this gives you, I mean, this is obviously an arms race now in the Pacific. And the Russians have some very useful technologies that the Chinese would be interested in. So the Russians have cruise missiles, subsonic cruise missiles at least as good, perhaps superior to the Tomahawks. For example, they have the KH-101, which is a stealthy cruise missile, subsonic, similar range to the Tomahawk. It's been actively and effectively used in the Ukraine war. So, of course, is the Calibre cruise missile, which has also been used by the Russians in the Ukraine war, and which is um, similar long-range missile. But, of course, there's other things which are perhaps even more important from a Chinese point of view. The Russians are amongst the world leaders in submarine technology. Some people think that they are the world leaders in submarine technology. Others say it's the United States. I mean, I don't know enough about this. But they have submarines, nuclear submarines, which are said to be much more advanced than the Chinese ones. They're quieter, they're faster, they dive deeper. They are at least a, a match for the U.S. submarines. They might be better than the U.S. submarines. I don't know. And the Russians are, of course, the world leaders in hypersonic missile technology. So, given that we're looking at a submarine race, given that we're looking at a missile race, you can easily see why the Chinese will be very interested in these Russian technologies. And, of course, they'll come to Russia and they'll ask... I mean, I'm sure this is going to happen. It's not going to be announced, but I'm sure this is going to happen. They'll be asking the Russians for advice and help um, on developing these technologies. We'll see submarines rolling off the Chinese shipyards. The Chinese are far ahead of the Russians in surface warships, apparently, but they're behind the Russians, far behind the Russians in submarines, and we'll be seeing that the Chinese are going to supplement their, submarine, their, their fleet with submarines that use Russian technologies and which are equipped with missiles, hypersonic missiles, also equipped, developed probably with Russian technologies. And, of course, they got a far bigger industrial capacity than either the United States or Australia, but of course Australia isn't even in the game. And 
what we're looking at is a naval arms race, which the Chinese are going to win. Yeah, uh, the the word is from the Kremlin that um, Putin and Xi are going to sign a declaration on entering, and I quote, a new era of relations between Russia and China. I wonder if, uh, I'm sure we're going to hear from the collective West uh, all about this meeting between Xi and Putin and how this is going to be the meeting where uh, Xi and, and China is going to provide lethal weapons to Ukraine. I wonder if if that's just the BS excuse that they're using so that they can uh, sanction China and continue to escalate in the Pacific. Yeah, so they're, they're using the exactly. excuse of weapons to Ukraine so that yeah, they can contain yeah. China in the Pacific. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly what they're going to do. I think that's partly what this is all about, which, of course, from a Chinese point of view, incentivizes them to provide those weapons. Why wouldn't they? <laughs> if they're going to be sanctioned anyway for supplying weapons, why not do it? Because if, you, you know, if you're going to be accused of doing something that you're not doing, you're going to be sanctioned, then you might as well do it because what's going to happen after all? Just that you're going to be sanctioned. Now, I'm not saying, I don't know that the Chinese are going to Moscow with a plan to supply Russia with weapons. I don't know that the Russians are asking the Chinese for any weapons. I haven't seen any evidence of this at all. But it's possible. We'll see. But, you know, if it is what this is all about, if this is what's going to happen, it's certainly not going to be announced by Putin and Xi publicly. There will be some kind of an agreement, some kind of announcement of a new partnership. I don't think this will be an open declaration of an alliance. But all the indications are that in practical terms, that's probably essentially what we've reached. Yeah. And the countries in the Pacific that are going to be used to contain China, we're looking at Australia, Japan, Philippines. Uh, what, is that right? Or Yeah. Or so of course, I gather... I gather that in the Philippines, many people have doubts about this. <laughs> and, of course, there's Japan as well. Now, Japan probably is committed to this enterprise because of its own historic concerns about China. But, of course, if Japan is built up, then South Korea might not be so happy. Other countries in the Pacific, Malaysia, Indonesia, they're probably nowhere near as keen about getting drawn into this. And the Chinese have great influence in these countries, and of course Vietnam too. And the Chinese got great influence in this in these countries. They've been there. This is their region. They've been there for thousands of years, and they've also got the enormous confidence that behind them, they have a far bigger industrial capacity than the United States. China's big weakness in this confrontation has always been that it relies heavily on external sources for key raw materials and food, oil, gas, food. And the Russians can provide these, and they're able to do so bypassing those routes which the US could notionally blockade. So from a Chinese point of view, you can see why... Russia is as important as it is. It doesn't just 
help China in terms of technology. It doesn't. It isn't just important for China in that the friendship with Russia helps to extend Chinese reach throughout Eurasia. It also helps China because it provides the Chinese with all these resources that China simply can't do without. And the Russians can do it, and they know that very well, obviously, and that's the basis of the relationship between the two. Yeah, all right. It sounds to me that, uh, it sounds it sounds like uh, what you're saying is that the, the, the main axis that's going to be formed to take on uh, China and the Pacific to contain China uh, in, in this uh, in this escalation is going to be the U.S., the U.K., and Australia. Yeah. And China is going to be working with Russia to counter this yes. containment. Where yes, this escalation just, goes, yeah. you know, we, we have to see. But exactly. But, you know, just, 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 just add up those three countries, the U.S., Britain, and Australia. Britain is far away. Australia? I mean, what does it add to U.S. power overall? I mean, it's a small... It's 25 million people. I mean, and, you know, they're going to be taking on this... Well, location. Eurasian, well, location, exactly. Location. Agreed. Yeah. Location. Yeah. So, you know, you, you militarize it and, and you get the, the, the location. Yeah. Exactly. Which is, but, from what I, mean, I understand, what they were looking to get from the Philippines. Yes, that's what they were looking yes. to to get from yes. the Philippines as yes. well. But yes, I mean the Philippines could flip. It seems to me at any time. Australia, of course, it's an English-speaking European descent country. It's an, a natural ally of the U.S. So perhaps it's understandable that they've gone the way they have. But ultimately, as I said, it's. It's, it's an arms race that, on the present facts, unless there's some kind of internal crisis in China or Russia, not impossible, but it's unlikely to happen, I would have thought, the Western powers can't win because the industrial resources available to the other side are so much greater. Yeah, it's also a, a sanctions escalator as well that's, that we're moving up. Of course, I mean, it's of course, it's quickly. And, we're and, and my big, and a question that I'm I'm wondering is if the uh, the U.S. is going to be able to convince the EU to go along with uh, with these sanctions that they're going to ramp up against China. That that'll be interesting if they can convince the yeah, EU well, to to do this. Well, probably they will. I mean, you know, the EU. When has it ever said no? Everything that this administration has asked for is got. We'll see. <laughs> All right, we'll leave it there, thedurant.locals.com. We are on Rumble and Rockfin, and go to the Durant shop, 10% off, use the code, good day. Take care.